a very long time. We are finally back into our series in Hebrews where we are dealing with this glorious theme that Jesus is better. How many of us know that Jesus is better? He is better, better, better than anything and anyone. And when we have found the pearl of great prize, there is nothing that can compare with him. This morning, we're going to be looking at the theme of Jesus being better than the angels. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the epistle to the Hebrews. It's so much my inclination to say the letter of the Apostle Paul, but scholars are conflicted about who actually wrote this letter. It is my opinion that it was Paul, but no one can know for sure. So I'm trying to say the author or the writer who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and uh, who wrote this letter to the Hebrew Christians in the first century. We're going to begin our reading with verse 4 this morning and through to the end of the chapter. So I want you to join with me in reading. Feel free to read with me in unison this morning. Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Media, could you just bring the volume down a bit, please? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And may the Lord add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. I know it's hard to believe, but it's actually two months since we've been away from uh, this series in Hebrews. So I think it will be good for us just to briefly review where we left off so that we could lay a foundation for where we will be heading in today's message. You will recall that the purpose of this letter 
is written to Hebrew Christians of the first century who are becoming a little ambivalent and confused and wondering if, should I really follow this Jesus? Maybe the law of Moses and the religion that I was part of all of my life and ever since Abraham, maybe that's the religion I should go back to. And so the writer to the Hebrews is pointing out throughout this book that Jesus is far better and that Jesus is superior in every way to everything that was under the old covenant because Jesus came as God to redeem the world. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is he of whom the prophets spoke. He is the anointed one of Israel. So don't think for one little moment that you should leave Jesus. Because leaving him, you are leaving the pearl of great price. You are leaving the hope of your salvation. And you are leaving the, uh, the way, the truth and the life. And so in verses 1 through 2, he lays this foundation by saying, in the past, God spoke to us by his prophets. And we all know how the prophets declared the word of the Lord. But now, in these last days, how is he speaking? He is speaking to us through his son. Who is this son? He is the one who created the world's. I mean, this Jesus is not just the man that you heard about who walked the shores of Galilee and who ministered compassion and love for three and a half years to those who were sick and affirmed. He's not just a man who was nailed to the cross. He is very God. He is the one who spoke these worlds into existence. He created it all. And then we read in verse 3, he's the express image of God. Do you really want to know what God looks like? Do you really want to know how God ticks? Do you really want to know what God feels? Do you really want to know how God acts? Do you really want to know how he responds to people? Then look to Jesus because Jesus is the express image of Almighty God. Then verse 3 not only points out that he's the creator God, but he is also the redeemer God who was robed in flesh, who became the perfect sacrifice for sin so that he could take away the sin of the world. And verse 3 states it so succinctly, but so perfectly. He had by himself how have we been redeemed? Not by silver or gold. No one paid a bazillion dollars to purchase our salvation. Our salvation could only be acquired by the Lamb of God laying his life down and shedding his precious blood. And through the sacrifice of that precious blood, he has himself purged us from our sins. Do we, do, do we see why Jesus is so much better? Because he took care 
of our sin problem. There's no problem so great as the sin problem. Once you deal with the sin problem, you've, you've gotten it all taken care of. Because once the sin problem is dealt with, we now are brought back to the Father. We now have a relationship with God. We're now accepted in the beloved. We now have a, a fellowship with God and with His Son through the Holy Spirit. What a glorious redemption is ours because Jesus, by Himself, has purged us from our sins. And when He completed the work of redemption... We read in verse 3 that he sat down. He sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. He was given this place of highest exaltation. (laughs) Do you remember James and John and their mom who said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you grant that my sons sit one on your right and one on your left, the positions of highest exaltation? grandeur and glory to to be seated right next to the king of kings and lord of lords but god the father said because my son fulfilled my will i will seat him at my right hand in this place of highest exaltation where he will be esteemed as king of kings and lord of lords as the supreme ruler the supreme authority and the supreme sovereign over all as my son because jesus was willing to drink those bitter dregs of that cup of suffering to the very last so that he could be seated at the right hand of the father As I thought about this, I thought, you know, there are times in our lives when we feel like, boy, we're working really hard. And, uh, you know, Lord, I'm doing this. And how many of you, how many of you know that feeling? Does anyone even know what I'm doing and how hard I'm working? And maybe I should just think about hanging it up. But you know what? It's not time for any one of us to hang it up until we have completed the work that God has called us to do. And I think each and every one of us need to examine our hearts today. What is our particular calling? We've been fitted into this body for a purpose, and that is not just to warm a pew on Sunday morning. That purpose is some gift, some calling, some anointing that God has given you so that you could be an edification to this body, so that through your gift, the body can be built up, the body can be blessed, the body can be encouraged. What is that gift? And you can't rest, you can't release yourself from that responsibility or calling until you complete all that God has called you to do. And that's the challenge before us. And Jesus completed the work, but now he is in heaven. And what is he doing in heaven? He is applying that work as he sits at the right hand of of the Father. You know, Jesus, through his death on the cross, provided for us all of the benefits of the atonement. And sadly... There's been a check written out in our name, and there is so much that God has for us that we've not laid hold of because we've not cashed in on that check, 
And I believe Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened so that we might know the hope of our calling, so that we might know the glorious riches of his inheritance that is ours because he paid such a price for us. And we can be encouraged today that no matter where we are on this journey, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to make intercession for us. And I love this quote. I know it's, I shared it with you, but I believe it's one we need to remind ourselves of every day by Robert Mary McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Does that bless your heart? He is praying for you today. Maybe you think no one knows what you're going through. No one understands. No one cares. But I want you to know that you know that you know that your great intercessor, your great high priest is seated by the Father and is making intercession for you. Do we see how the writer to the Hebrews is beginning to unfold before us the glory of Jesus? And as we continue in this book, we continue to see that theme grow and expand. And we continue to understand the glory of who this Jesus is. The Son of God, our Savior. The one who wants us to know him in a deeper, richer, more fully, full way. And the more that we can apprehend of the truth of who this Jesus is in all of his glory, when it begins to truly permeate our hearts, we can then begin to apprehend the completeness and the greatness of this salvation that Jesus purchased for us. Christian friends, do we understand to know the glory of Jesus is our greatest need? Because Jesus is better than anything else. Jesus is better than anything else. You, you think about the greatest thrill that you've ever had in life or the greatest thrill that someday you're looking forward to having, the greatest dream that is going to be fulfilled in your life, I want you to know that it can't compare it can't begin to compare to the glory of who the Son of God is. He is far superior. He is far better than anything you could experience in this life or that anyone can bring to you as another person. It can only be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And I, I think that really challenges us as charismatics who really love that emotional high. We love the conferences because when people go to a conference, I mean, that place is just pumped. That place is psyched. And, and we, we, we just get high on that emotion of what we're experiencing. But I want you to know that if it's not about the glory of Jesus, you're missing what is taking place. It's all about the glory of Jesus. And it's not about how great the worship is. It's not about how great the preachers are. It's about how great Jesus is and how he wants to reveal himself to us in a deep and in a personal way. Jesus alone 
is all that we need because it's by him and through him and for him that it all exists. The supremacy, the preeminence, and the glory of Jesus. You know, I love, I love reading the mystics and I, I love reading the old saints because they, they walked with Jesus in such an intimate way. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about uh, a ritual. It wasn't about the monastery that they lived in. It was about experiencing the glory of Jesus and walking with him and talking with him and relating to him and having supernatural revelations of who he is. Do you know that as long as we live, we will never plumb the depths of Jesus and all of his glory? Never. And we could go to a conference and feel like, oh, I, I don't know if I could take anymore. Well, that's like a drop in a teacup. There's so much more that the Lord has for us and that he wants to reveal to us. But how hungry are our hearts for him? How hungry. And so the writer to the Hebrews is just imploring and pleading with these Jewish believers, please know and understand that while your hearts are becoming weary worn and you think you want to go back to a dead religion, you want to back to a, a covenant of do's and don'ts. Don't you know that this Jesus who is who has come to this earth as a babe in Bethlehem's manger so that he might take on flesh to die on that cross, to take upon himself our sin so that you could know him in a personal way, so that he could begin to live his life in and through you and reveal his glory in and through your life. And so he, he begins in this first chapter to begin to explain why Jesus is so superior to the old covenant. And as we look into this chapter, we see that in the, uh, the glory of the new covenant, when you, when you compare it to the old, there's no comparison. And, and I know the Jewish people thought, wow, the old covenant, that is... The beginning, that is the end. It is the all in all. But as we read this beautiful epistle, the writer tells us that if you think that's the all in all, you, you have no idea who Jesus is. Because Jesus is far superior than the angels. He's far superior than Moses. He's far superior than Abraham. And he's far superior than the Levitical priesthood. And, you know, that's really, really significant because as far as the Jewish mentality and mindset was, when it came to those things that I just listed, they were the be-all and the end-all. They were the epitome of what spirituality was. They were the epitome of what it was to know God through the angels and through Abraham and through Moses and through the Levitical priesthood. And so it begins as he outlines how Jesus is superior to all of these by talking about how Jesus is superior to angels. And before we get into 
the passage that is before us, and don't get nervous because I know we read a lot of scriptures and it's taken us weeks just to get to through two verses, so I'm not going to attempt in this message today to get through to the end of this chapter. I was just reading it so we could get the whole context. But as we, uh, before we look into that, I, I just wanted us to digress just for a few moments and talk about angels because I uh, thought about it that in all the years that I've preached, I've never preached a message on angels. And I don't intend to do that this morning, but I, I think there's something important in, in God's word that he wants us to know about angels that can bless us and encourage us. And maybe it's because we're so earthbound that I don't think we really, do we really think a lot about angels? I know sometimes I think it's almost cliche-ish that we talk in our prayers and we pray, Lord, let your, let your angels surround us. But do we go through life thinking about, Lord, I'm just so grateful that there are angels that are surrounding me. We want to be blessed in the realization of that. You know, we're, we're so taken up with these five senses through which we live our lives that we lose sight of what is happening in a greater reality than what we see, what we feel, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, and that's the realm of the spirit. We, we think that all of this is real, but it's, it's only a fantasy in compared to the real reality that you can't see with these eyes. You need to see through the eyes of the Spirit. And God wants to reveal to us in greater ways the realm of the Spirit so that we could live more effective Christian lives. For those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit. And when we're led by the Spirit, the, the Spirit of God shows us the things of the Spirit that, that are not discerned by these ears or these eyes, but by the inner man of the heart. So may God open the eyes of our heart and flood our hearts with the truth of his word. But despite our ignorance of angels and despite our disregard of them, what is happening in the spiritual realm is real, and there is a lot of angelic activity. I believe that when we come to the house of the Lord, that when we come with a heart to worship God in spirit and in truth, that there's angelic activity. There have been services where you've heard a sound that you knew was not any human sound. It was an angelic sound as angels joined with the congregation in singing praises to God. And perhaps today we don't really give angels their proper due because of all the lame caricatures we think of when we think of angels. We come up with these cutesy little cherubs. They're, they're not in the Bible, those little baby cherubs. Or if they're adult angels, we see them in these long flowing robes with these wings that are sitting on clouds and are playing harps. Not to mention that they're always fair-skinned and most of them actually look very uh, gentle and, could I say, feminine when these angels are mighty warriors that God has created, these supernatural spirit beings who were created to uh, fulfill and accomplish his purposes and his plans. 
And that word angel actually means messenger. They are God's messengers sent into this earth to accomplish God's word and God's promises. Did you know that just in the text that we've read this morning, angels were mentioned eight times in just those 11 verses? And in the scriptures, angels are mentioned 300 times. They're identified by various names. In Job, they're called sons of God. In Psalm 89, they're called the holy ones. In Hebrews, we see they're called ministering spirits. In the book of Daniel, they're called the watchers. In Paul's epistles, he calls them dominions and principalities. In Psalm 104, they're called flames of fire. In Job, they're called the morning stars that sang together when God created the universe. And in 2 Kings, we read their chariots of fire. In the book of Daniel, we read about Michael, who was a warrior angel, mighty, supernaturally mighty to do the work of God. We read in the Old Testament how one angel slew thousands of the enemies of the Israelites. Now, if they were to go against that Syrian army with the Israeli army, they would have needed thousands of soldiers. They were so outnumbered, so God said, let me take care of this, and I'll just dispatch one of my angels. And with the sword of the Lord, destroyed thousands of them. There are special kinds of angels. The Bible talks about cherubim. These are special agents that have special jobs. You may, may recall that God, in the book of Genesis, gave the task of guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and the cherubim are there guarding that entrance. They are the sentries, like you find at the Buckingham Palace or the Swiss Guard in front of the Vatican or the Secret Service who guard our government officials. Then there are also the seraphim. The seraphim that we find is it in Isaiah 6, who cry, holy, holy, holy. That, that word seraphim is plural for seraph. That means in the Hebrew to burn. These are the burning ones. They are so close to the throne of God that they are aflame with a passion to worship the Holy One who sits upon the throne. And we read in the Word of God that they cry day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The hosts of angelic powers that God created seems to have a hierarchy that God created. There are only three in the scriptures that are actually identified by name in the scripture. We know Michael, as I've already mentioned, the archangel. He's some kind of superpower who's a protector and especially assigned to defend the nation of Israel. And thank God for Michael, because all the hosts of Satan's evil armies can come against Israel, but they will not be defeated, or they will be defeated, because God will raise up 
Michael, uh, to destroy them. The other angel that is named is Gabriel. Gabriel shows up in uh, Daniel chapter 8 and 9. He also shows up in the Gospels where he said to Mary, Mary, you're going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph is ready to divorce her and Gabriel goes to Joseph in a dream and he said, Joseph, you can't divorce her. That which is born in her is by the Holy Spirit and you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then the third angel that is named in the scripture, believe it or not, is Lucifer, who was the worship leader of heaven. But the moment he decided that he would be equal with God, in a flash, in a nanosecond, he was cast out of heaven. The son of the morning is his name, light bearer, and now he is blackness and darkness. But surprisingly enough, apart from those three that are named in the scriptures, all of the other angels are nameless, but they are also numberless. We recall one of the names for God is the Lord of hosts. I love that name of God <laughs> because I know that God is the captain and the leader of my salvation, and he is also the captain and the leader of the hosts of heaven. How many angels are there in heaven? In Hebrews 12 and verse 22, it says, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. You know what innumerable means? That's impossible to number them. So many you cannot count them. We have another glimpse of this in Revelation 5 and verse 11 where John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, I think. It's safe to say that there are probably billions of angels, maybe trillions, but there are certainly enough to accomplish God's purposes, certainly enough to watch over every one of God's children. And that's what I want us to be encouraged with this morning. What does God's word say concerning the work of the angels? We find it in the chapter and passage that we've read this morning in verse 7. Of the angels, he says who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Who are these ministers? Ministers are those who serve. You say, oh, I'm involved in this ministry. What does that mean? That you could have a title before your name? <laughs> we know that's not true. Uh, does, does that mean that you, you're given some kind of pomp and circumstance because you've been given such an auspicious position? No. It's what Jesus said. He who would be greatest in the kingdom must become servant of all. So those who are greatest in the kingdom of God are those who've taken the basin and the towel and who lowly bend to serve others as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who the angels are. God created them to be servants. 
their calling as angels are to be his ministers. And I like this translation in the Lexham English Bible, who are sent out on assignment to serve. They're not sent out on assignment to show, look at me, I'm an angel. And then we could say, I saw an angel. No, those angels are dispatched to minister to us, to serve us. In Psalm 103, we read these words, Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones, who do his work, obeying the voice of his word. You know why it's so important that we pray the word of God? Because I believe as we pray and declare the word of God, this scripture is telling us it attracts the attention of angels. Because when they hear the word of the Lord, they know it's their responsibility to ensure that that word gets fulfilled. And that word becomes accomplished. They obey the voice of his word. So angels are on assignment to minister to who? They are on assignment to minister to us. And that's underscored again in verse 14 of the chapter that we read this morning. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for who? For those who will inherit salvation. You see, in this passage of Scripture, it gives us another hint to the reality that our salvation has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Our salvation has not yet been fully consummated, but it will be someday. But in the meantime, God is dispatching angels to minister to us and to serve us. And how are they serving us? What does their service involve? Psalm 91 and verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. I believe that speaks of provision. In all of my ways, in every path that I tread, in every activity in which I engage, in everywhere I go, the angels of the Lord are given charge over me. Their assignment is you take care of Paul Spuler and provide for what he has need of. Psalm 34 and verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around. I love that. There, there's a circumference an encircling of angelic activity that surrounds us, those who fear the Lord, and delivers them. There's protection. The enemy will come at us, but there is divine protection to deliver us. And as we read that great example of that deliverance in Daniel 6 and 22, my God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions so that they have not hurt me. God sends his angels to provide for us, to protect us, to deliver us. Okay, let's get back to our text this morning. How then is Jesus? That was just... Angelology 101, I, I hope maybe you learned something, may hopefully, prayerfully, you're encouraged to know that there's angelic activity 
that is yours because you are a child of God today. So what is the writer to the Hebrews? How is he going to prove to his readers that Jesus is far superior to the angels? Now, you might say, well, why were angels so important to the Jewish people? And why did they hold them in such high esteem? Well, there was nothing more important to the Jewish people than Torah. We know what Torah is. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, that is the be-all and end-all of the Jewish faith. Of course, they embrace the whole Old Testament, but to know God, to know what he requires, to know what he expects, they give their, the, the, the devoutest of Jews give their whole life to the study of Torah. I don't know if, I, I, one of the genres of movies that I enjoy in particular are Jewish movies and Jewish films. And uh, recently there was a series, Shtitzel. I'm not, Stephen, am I saying that in Hebrew? Shtitzel. And if you recognize the name, it's a wonderful series. But in this, you see how Jewish people live, and especially those who are students of the law, they go into their, forgive me, I forget the Hebrew name. She, uh, it slips my mind. It's not Shiva. But they go to where they go, and their Torah is opened, and there they study. And there was this young student that I was so impressed with. It is in, toward the midnight hours, and he is putting his feet in ice-cold water because he doesn't want to fall asleep. He wants to stay awake because he wants to learn what God is saying through Torah. That's how they reverence Torah. But how did they get Torah? They got Torah through angelic mediatorship. God used the angels to deliver Torah to them. Now, when you read about how Moses got the law in the book of Exodus, you don't read anything about angels. You just see, you see Moses on the mountain and God gives him the tablets and these are the laws and the commandments. But then when you get into the New Testament, all of a sudden you read in Hebrews... You read that Paul speaks in other places in the New Testament and Stephen and they all reference angels that brought to Israel the Old Testament economy and the word of God. In Hebrews 2.2 2 we read, for the words spoken through angels proved steadfast. In other words, the law of God was the bedrock of your faith. That was delivered to you through angels. Again, in Acts 7, there are two verses there where Stephen speaks about the role of angels. You know, Stephen now is in this place giving this fiery sermon to the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and through the word of God, he is bringing conviction to their hearts because he's speaking in a language that they understand and with an appreciation that they have for the word of God that now condemns them. And in verse 38 of chapter 7, 
Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. What's the inference? What did you do with those life-giving words? Then we jump down to verse 53 of chapter 7. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. What good is saying I reverence the word of God, but not believing it and obeying it. And so the writer to Hebrews is pointing out as awesome as it was that God would dispatch angels in whatever role it was to be mediators to help them get that law, that word of God that they needed to govern a nation, to, to rule them, to guide them, to lead them. Far superior to any angelic being is Jesus Christ. And before we look at then, through the rest of the chapter, and we're not going to have time to get through it this, this morning, but the writer to Hebrews then quotes again from the Old Testament, the book of the Bible that they loved, that they believed in, that they read, that they reverenced, but now helping them to understand how Jesus is superior to the angels. But before we look at that, I want us to notice something that I believe is so critical that when in the New Testament the old is quoted, we always read words like this. As Moses has said, or David says, or the prophets spoke. But in these seven quotations that follow, where do they come from? They come from the very mouth of God. And what do we read in the passage that we've read as our text this morning? As the writer of the Hebrews is quoting all of these Old Testament passages, he saith, the Holy Ghost saith. In other words, this wasn't another man who wrote these words. These words came from the very mouth of God. And what I want to underscore as we close this message this morning is when we read God's word, when we hear God's word, and I trust even as you hear this pastor preach God's word, that you are not listening to a man, but you're saying, Holy Spirit, let me hear what you are saying. Let me hear what God is speaking. Let me hide in my heart the word of the living God. When we open this Bible, let us understand that we're not reading the word of Moses. We're not reading the word of Paul or Peter or Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. We are reading words that have been written by the very mouth of God for holy men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Wrote, not was in their own mind, but what the Holy Spirit was dictating. They were merely the pen 
that wrote the very words of God. And that is why this is a book like no other book. It is not black letters on white paper. It is the living, everlasting word of God. And heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God shall never pass away. We can stake our lives on it. We can believe in it in the darkest hour of our lives because the word of God is true. God is not a man that he should lie. The word of God, the revelation of who he is that comes to us to bring change and transformation to our lives. You know what I love about the word of God? It, it, it is a living seed. It is a seed that has power to reproduce. And when it comes into my spirit, it, it becomes one with my spirit. And it changes even my DNA. It changes the things that are part of my soul that I inherited from generations past. And you know, do you know there are people, it goes from generation to generation to generation to generation. The same evil habits, the same sinful uh, inclinations because the word of God has not gotten into one generation that says this is enough. It's stopping here. There's, no, there's not going to be any more drunkenness in this family. There's not going to be any more adultery in this family. There's not going to be any more lust in this family. I'm going to let the living word of God come into me and change me. and Make me a new person in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the word of God. It's not head knowledge. It's, it's a revelation that comes by the Holy Spirit. I'm very fond of reading as part of my devotional experience on a daily basis. T. Austin Sparks, who uh, does an Open Windows e-devotional. And one of the recent posts really captured my attention where he writes these words. We have forgotten that the Bible is not only a revelation, but it also contains a revelation, and that the deeper spiritual content is only possible of recognition and realization by those who have had their eyes and ears opened. In other words, those who have been awakened by the Spirit of God. So if you're reading your Bible as a good Christian should read their Bible, right? Okay, I got to read these three chapters today. There, I'm finished my reading. Yeah, you've read the Word of God, but chances are you've read black letters on white paper because your heart was not inclined to hear what the Spirit was saying. It was just your mind saying, I'm a Christian and I need to read the Bible. We're missing out because God wants to awaken us to the deeper revelation that you see that in those words there is revelation that has power to change us power to transform us then t austin sparks continues with these words it is the greatest day in the history of our lives when we can say it pleased god to reveal his son in me 
and I received it not from men, but by revelation. Such revelation through the scriptures is nothing less than revolutionary. And then he adds these words, though usually costly. You know what the cost is? The cost is an open heart. The cost is the priority, Lord. I, I cannot live by bread alone. I need your word. I hunger for your truth. I, I will not let you go until you bless me. I know a lot of people are fond of, and I'm not criticizing this, because if that's what God has led you to do, that's a great discipline, that there's a Bible reading plan, and you, you just go through that. So at the end of the year, you could say, I read the whole Bible through. But I'm just speaking for myself and my own personal life. I have found that that really was counterproductive as far as gaining spiritual maturity because I found that in the hustle and bustle of life that all of that I had to read just pressured me into reading for reading's sake and not reading slowly and quietly for allowing the Holy Spirit to stop me at a word where I could just meditate and ponder what is God saying to me right now. And I believe that every day in our lives, that's how we should read the word of God. Read it until the Holy Spirit stops you somewhere and speaks truth to your heart. Our hearts open for what God has for us. God has so much more. Can we humbly wait for him in that place of prayer? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to open? He's the author of the word. And this is the only book that you will ever read where the author himself is available to explain the truth that is written to you. So we open up our hearts to receive the revelation and the application Because truth received, unless it is applied, unless it is fleshed out, unless it is walked out, James says, then we are like those who look into a mirror and we walk away not acknowledging and recognizing what we saw in that mirror. But when we look into the mirror of God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to plant that truth deep in our hearts, we will be changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we close our service, I want us to sing that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. I believe media will help us. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Sometimes our hearts are not opened. Our hearts are filled with so much else. But let's pray as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that God would flood our hearts with light, that we might See, who do we want it? Jesus. This is all about Jesus. He's the living word. We need, we need more of Jesus today. We need more of the revelation of the glory of Jesus as he's revealed to us through this word. So let's stand this morning. Are we ready, media? Open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you high and lifted up filled with the light of your glory. Amen. Let's sing together.